to the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians in chapter 1, Philippians 1. I recently heard someone say that they, uh, they're exploring the, um, the Old Testament and, uh, and the Psalms and prophets, even the law in Deuteronomy, um, because um, it's challenging. And, you know, like, unlike Paul's letters, which are so easy, like reading Philippians or Ephesians, you know, it's just so easy. And so it's, it's good to go after something, you know, hard. And um, I think that that's a little bit of a mistake to think that way about Paul's letters. Since Peter says in second, or yeah, second Peter 3.16, a lot of what Paul says is challenging and um, it's hard to understand. But I do understand the sentiment. Uh, the words of Philippians are fairly straightforward. Some of them provide, well, certainly some of them provide a challenge to us, but most of it is very accessible. And in part, I think it's because of the tone he has with them. He's not teaching really complicated material. There's a complication when you get to chapter two and the doctrine of the kenosis and the natures of Christ. But um, for the most part, he's encouraging them and congratulating them. It's a salutary letter. It's a letter of, you're doing great, keep doing great. We have a few letters like this from Paul that that's their tone intentionally, like the first epistle to the Thessalonians. And... Um, I think this is the most salutary. This is the, the, the greatest heaping of encouragement. And you're doing well, keep doing better. But in every case, whether he's tearing them up in Galatians and 1 Corinthians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know, that really tough language in Galatians. Those that are, <laughs> that are opposing you, I wish they'd mutilate themselves. And I'm speaking euphemistically when I say that. I mean, Galatians is tough. First Corinthians is really tough. Whatever Paul's doing, he's giving them feedback. But interestingly, it's not the kind of feedback that we crave in our flesh in dealing with one another. The I'm okay if you're okay with me kind of feedback. Are we good? Are we good? There's not a lot of insecurity in this Christian life. In fact, there, there should be none because of the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. For me to live as Christ and die as gain, that's Philippians. And so, can you get feedback from Christians without being insecure? Without it being a matter of depending on your, your, your spiritual life, depending on it? A lot of people struggle with that. Well, Paul has feedback for the, for the Philippians here that is not Corinthian, it's not Galatian, it's 
good news. It's you're doing well. But he never says, okay, so you can you go on break. He says, you've done well. It's Friday afternoon. Get to work. Nice work. Get to work. That's the Christian ethic. Because we're on mission. The illustration of this that comes to mind is when deployed. I use these illustrations a lot, but just I think it's very helpful. We are at war. We're in a war. We didn't, we didn't start it. We didn't ask to be in it. You have to fight the good fight now. In the peacetime army, they say, in peacetime, I'm sorry, they say it's better to be in the army in peacetime and better be in the Navy in wartime. You ever heard that? What they mean is that the Navy is always deploying, always deploying. And if they do it, unless there's something goes seriously wrong with the positioning of the fleet, for the most part in wartime, the, the exercises will be very similar to peacetime and wartime. I don't want to oversimplify the dangers of combat in the Navy. I'm just saying the nature of naval combat is real different from force on force ground combat. But the reason they say it's better to be in the army when, you're not, when, when it's not a war, when it's peacetime, is because the army is basically training. You have to do all this effort to con con contrive scenarios for the, for the kids on, uh, out in the field and camping out to, to practice war games. You have to do all this contrived stuff. And they have to think, you have to try to practice like it's real, even though it's absolutely not real. There's no bullets anywhere. Now, on a range, they shoot. But I'm just saying, it's, it's not people shooting at you at all. And, and so in peacetime, you know what happens after you finish a field problem, you go, to, go out for two weeks or whatever, a really long field rotation, three weeks. You know what you do after that? You go home and you take a shower and you, you, you spend time with your family and then you get up in the morning and it's probably a weekend and you have Saturday and then you have Sunday and you don't ever put on a uniform and you don't even have to shave because you're not going into work, but you know, obviously you should shave, but you don't have to. And then, and then Monday morning you get up and you go, you put on gym clothes and you go work out with the guys in the morning. It's great. Get up at five, you know, and go work out. And then you take a shower and then you go to breakfast and you have a cup of coffee and then you get in your uniform and you go in at nine and you go to work. Now we started at six and a lot got done, but I'm just saying it's a nine to five sort of thing. Well, 430 government, you know, federal service. And so that's the army's life until you get deployed. Now, the reason they're a little bit lax on, besides being federal service, you know, the banks all close at four and all. The reason it's a little bit lax, they let you go home at night, go spend time with your family. Hey guys, I don't have anything else for you today. You did a good job, 3.30, head on out. It's because when you get deployed, you are on the job the whole time. You are working in your work every day of the week, every hour of the day, and your rest cycle is planned and, and scheduled as part of your work. You need to sleep in order to be able to work. And so 
officers really struggle with getting enough sleep, and it becomes this, this thing. And, and after uh, a few weeks of this constant work, it can become, it can become very draining. You also get into a rhythm and say, you know, we're not sprinting, we're having a long run here. And so we just kind of measure, you know, do what we can and, and be steady. And it's just a totally different life. It's a totally different life when you get deployed from when you're back home with the family. The Christian spiritual life is more like a deployment. We're always on mission. The rhythms of life where we take our, take a break, take a pause, regroup. The Bible includes in God's law for Israel rest. The Bible says we live in a Sabbath rest as believers in Jesus in this age. But it's always, the fight is always going on. You always are dealing with the temptation of the flesh. You're always somehow hearing from Satan's world system administered by demons. You're always at war. You go home, there are people there and they're sinful. You go to work, there are people there and they're sinful. And you came and you're sinful. And it's just always, always going on. So Paul is writing a letter to people that are getting it right. And he says, don't rest on that. Don't just say, oh, we did a good work. We, we supported Paul and he's been able to go full-time in ministry. It's great news. Keep going, run up the scoreboard. There's no 10 run rule here. <laughs> keep going, keep going, keep going. That's the attitude of the apostle Paul. He never lets up. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ is how he starts his letter to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ, to all the saints. I've, in my translation, supplied a paraphrase for a saint. Those who are sanctified or set apart. He's talking about believers in Jesus Christ who at the moment of trusting in Jesus were imputed with God's righteousness, um, given God's life, eternal life, made new in their spirit with a new human spirit in Christ, the new life that we've been given and declared by, by the declaration of righteousness and the new position through the baptism of the spirit into Christ, they are set apart to God. This is true for all believers. It doesn't mean someone's super spiritual. It means someone has been saved by grace through faith. And this is the audience for the letter to the Philippians. I believe it is the audience for the New Testament. I believe the New Testament is written to believers. Some say, well, the gospel of John gives you its purpose statement. These have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing you have life through his name, John 20, 31, that that book was written for unbelievers to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. The seven signs that he's talking about, these signs of Christ's power, so you would believe. First of all, I need to believe that every day. I need to think these things. It's not like I have believed and then faith is done. 
I go on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and I am very strengthened when I read John to do that. That's the first thing I'll say. The second is, John chapters 13 through 17 is only believers. It is only believers. Judas is gone, and that's a big point of what Jesus says in chapter 13. You're clean, but not all of you, and then Judas goes out. And he's only talking to believers, and this is the seed, as I say, that the New Testament grows out of. The doctrinal seed that Jesus taught his disciples that last night, that all of the New Testament doctrine grows out of. Even the promise that they would remember what Jesus had taught them, because the Holy Spirit would help them remember, is why we read Matthew. Because Matthew the Apostle is empowered by the Spirit to remember exactly what Jesus taught him. This is the New Testament, people. It's written to believers. And everywhere we have this kind of statement to, to, the, to the saints. I'm talking to the saints. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is written to the saints in Corinth. And they are, are in desperate need of some repentance. Some change of their mind about their spiritual lives, about their responsibilities. And every time you and I find ourselves carnal, walking as mere men like the Corinthians were, we need that as well. Paul is writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi with the elders and deacons. That would probably be Philippi. Now, in, uh, in Greek, we emphasize the first syllable very often. In Hebrew, we emphasize the last syllable. And so I pronounce both. Uh, I butcher both a lot. Okay. Um, w w one thing I wanted to point out, people will use this verse, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, as a proof that you have to have plural elders in a church. You have to have multiple elders in a church. Proof text right there to the elders and deacons. And every proof text that is advanced, I have the same question that I ask it, not from my tradition, not from my experience, but from the actual question of the text. Philippi is a big city, it's a big place. Do we think there's only one place where one household where Christians gather? Is it all just in that one house? Or at this point, with as much money as, as has been raised, do we think there are multiple households? And if there is a possibility that there's a Preston City Bible Church and a North Stonington Bible Church in the same town, greater Philippi, if, there's a, if, that, if that could be, then you don't have a proof text of plural elders in a church. You don't have a proof of it. I think an elder, you have as many as God gives you. And I think elders and pastors and overseers are all the same because of 1 Peter 5, where he says, you who are elders need to oversee and pastor. So spiritual gift of pastor, elder, by maturity, overseer, and function. Anyway, I don't think this is a proof text of that. I think he's saying the leadership. Some say, well, the deacons aren't leaders. I say, no, 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 they're not leaders, they're servants. Well, we're told in one place, Christ is a servant, same word. Elsewhere, Paul says he's a diakonos, he's a servant, all right? We're all in service. And if you watch in Acts 6, when, when the apostles set up the deacons, they are absolutely in an authoritative position to make decisions that other people have to submit to. If you read it, they're actually dealing with where the money goes. That's what the original deacons are doing. The serving tables, it says, but it's, it's the determination of these squabbles, these, these fights that are happening between the Hellenistic and, um, 
and, and local Jew, Jewish Christians. And, and it's very much authoritative, but it's not what the elders are doing. Nevertheless, to the leadership along with everyone else. So he emphasizes leadership in Philippians. He has been uh, given a report by Epaphroditus, the, probably one of, if not one of the pastors of Philippi. He's been, br been brought this message and he's sending him back. And the story behind the letter of Philippians, we have that Epaphroditus almost died. There's another interesting thing. I do have a proof text here. If Epaphroditus almost died and Paul prayed for him, but he couldn't heal him, then, I mean, before people were taking handkerchiefs from Paul's body and touching the sick and they could be healed. At this point in Paul's ministry, and we're pretty far, we're past the book of Acts and the Christian life of Paul. At this point in Paul's ministry, he apparently can't just heal Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus recovered and God spared everyone, Paul says, but he couldn't just heal him, apparently. That's an interesting insight on the question of the revelatory gifts. One thing is for sure is that anything God wants, right? He's going to do it his way. And if he doesn't want to heal Epaphroditus through Paul at that point, he doesn't. And he didn't. But we emphasize the leadership and the leadership is uh, honored throughout the letter to the Philippians. And then he gives his stock blessing, the stock blessing the apostle Paul offers all those to whom he writes because he's coming to you from the character of Jesus Christ and the attitude of Christ and he knows what God wants for you. God does not want bad. God doesn't want uh, loss. He doesn't want you just to be disciplined and, and corrected all the time. He wants you to enjoy his grace and his, not our, his peace. The peace in Philippians that surpasses all comprehension and guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7. This is God's will for you. And I'll say it every time I preach an epistle from Paul. When he says grace and peace to you, he's not just saying, dear Philippians. He's telling you that this is what God wants for you. And so those who come with a message from God come with this attitude. This is what God wants for his dear ones. Why? Well, my experience tells me differently. No, your experience tells you that you have challenges, that you need to trust God through the challenges. That's what it's teaching you, is to trust him. I'm not teaching you that he's not faithful, that he doesn't care about you, that he doesn't want you to enjoy his grace and peace. And then the great verses three through six, the prayer of the apostle Paul, beginning in verse three. Paul tells you how he prays and what he prays for in all his epistles. We're studying that on Wednesday nights. We just kicked open a study of the, the epistles, uh, how Paul prays or how, I'm sorry, the Christian pattern for prayer, starting with the way the apostles reported what Jesus prayed. Philippians 1, 3 through 6 is staggering. It says in the New American Standard, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. A good translation. And uh, if you listen carefully and watch thematically, well, you might have some questions on what is he talking about in the context, the answers are there. We know what he's talking about when he says he began a good work in you. We know what he's talking about when he says um, why he's rejoicing. We know what this is about. This is about the fact that these are his ministry partners. 
that these are people that are right alongside him. They're not physically present, but they're supporting his ministry. And so they might as well be physically present going through the sacrificial hard work that Paul goes through to bring the gospel. And we'll hear about his suffering through this letter and how their participation in his suffering uh, right here. It says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. The main verb of the passage is I think. I am thankful to God. That's what is, is very important. This is the portion of the prayer where he tells you, this is what I'm giving thanks about. Regarding you, every time I remember you, upon every remembrance, I thank God for you. Now, this is a man who tells you several places to pray without ceasing. So every time the Philippians come to mind, he thanks God. Let's give it a possible, let's just do some historical fiction to, to illustrate. Paul was a tent maker, but he couldn't, uh, and he couldn't be full-time in ministry without the support of the Philippians. And they put him into full-time ministry by their giving. This is a part of, a big part of Paul's philosophy of ministry. Full-time when I can, okay? The Philippians have given, have, have given a, a generous donation. Paul has on his desk, he had to have something to write on. So we'll say a desk, because that's what you write on with a piece of paper, because he's sending letters. So Paul has on his desk a fresh letter from the Philippians. He also has a letter from um, the churches in Asia Minor, a report that's come back from Timothy in Ephesus and, and, uh, and um, Thyatira and Laodicea. He's got this information that's come back and it's on paper. And the reason he has that is because he has been able to send someone like Timothy to go find out and, and encourage the saints and then come back with a message because he's stuck in prison. So he's got runners. He's able to support their effort, send them with some food or with some money to be able to, to do that work. They're able to bring back a report and possibly a letter from the church. And that all takes resources. And Paul's sitting there on his desk with a fresh report from Thyatira from Laodicea. And every time he sees that fresh report, he's reminded of the Philippians because it was their resources that enabled him to send the runner and to, to afford the paper and all that's involved in that ministry. And so he, everything he's looking around, he has, let's, let's say in one place he tells, I think he tells Timothy, go get me the parchments. I need my coat. I need, par I need me some parchments. And he wants, he wants his old Testament scrolls right? Well, I don't know at what point in Paul's life he left his parchments, but let's say he's sitting there with some recently copied parchments that he, that he was able to afford. That's some very valuable, to have books back then, to have scrolls is very expensive. But he says, yet, yeah, Timothy, go get me my parchments. Well, that's later in his life. Let's say here he's sitting there with them. Why does he have them? Well, he did what Erasmus said. He, what, if, he, if I have money, I buy books. If I have any money left over, I buy food, is my paraphrase of Erasmus of Rotterdam. He, he bought some, some Old Testament scrolls, and he didn't have to go to the synagogue to borrow theirs. He has his own. I mean, think about the logistics of the Apostle Paul. He's a guy that needs Old Testament scrolls. He needs paper, and he needs money to send runners to go communi communicate what he's written and to bring back word from them. And these things are all happening because the Philippians have given. So every time he looks at Timothy, who just got back, he says, those Philippians. 
the Philippians are central to the effectiveness of Paul's ministry. So I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. See, Paul is a man whose entire life is the ministry of the gospel. And now the Philippians are on his mind all the time because that's how God has arranged it. And this is, this is a paradigm for all of us in the ministry of the gospel. Always in my every uh, dasis, your Bible says prayer. I usually translate the word uh, uh, prosukamai to pray and the, the derivative noun, but um, this is a different word and it's got a verb associated with it. And I think it's better to say request or the big word is supplication, urgent specific request. He's said Thanksgiving and now he's talking about requests that are made. That's the specifics of the language of prayer. What do we do in prayer? We glorify God. We thank him. Well, we confess our sins. We thank him. We um, intercede for others and we make our requests for ourselves. These intercessions and requests for self, these things are supplications. They're urgent and specific requests. It's kind of your stock word for what this English word supplication means. And I think that's what he's talking about every time I make a request concerning you. And in verse uh, four or verse three here, I'm sorry, it's verse four, offering prayer in every supplication concerning all of you, making this request, this supplication with joy. In verse four, this idea is fronted and we don't hear what the prayer is until, um, what, verse nine, this I pray that your love may abound. We don't know what a specific request is until we get all the way down. But he's saying, when I think of you, I give thanks and I'm always making this request for you and I'll tell you what the request is. And so he, he kind of sets you up with a little bit of anticipation, but he tells you when I'm making my, my deliberate prayer time and I'm focusing on you and I'm praying for you, it is with joy. I do this with joy. And why am I rejoicing? On account of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The reason I get excited about you and the reason I am rejoicing in my asking is because of your support of the gospel ministry. And I, I, let's don't make this at all um, mercenary. You gave me money, so I thank God for you. That's not... That, that just clouds everything. He's saying your, your workers with me, you're, you're my fellowship in the gospel, that, that there is this effort that doesn't happen. Now, we Americans appreciate individualism, individual responsibility, individual success, individual failure. And uh, we're right to do so because God deals with us as individuals, but he also deals with groups. And the secret to the group, you ready? Is the successfully functioning individual. <laughs> it really is. If you want to have a successful country, you need individuals that have civic responsibility. If you want to have a successful marriage, you need husbands and wives doing their job. If you want to have a successful family, kids need to obey their parents, parents need to train their children. Individuals make groups and individuals that are successful make successful groups. Working together is impossible in this ministry of the gospel without the fellowship we have in Christ without the word of God filling us richly, that Jesus Christ through his spirit is characterizing us with his character, giving us his attitude, his perspective. And so that's what's happening for Paul. He's right there with the Lord and that's where the Philippians are. So they're on mission. And so they're enjoying this fellowship of the gospel. And that's why Paul is rejoicing. 
and this will cause us joy. Now here's a great question that challenges me and you. Do we have the joy that Paul has? If not, what are we doing wrong? How do we get it? What am I missing? What am I not involved in that will give me this joy? This is, I think, an essential nutrient in the spiritual life of the believer. It is this kind of ministry success, this kind of effectiveness, this kind of corporate effort. It's awesome. God has blessed Preston City Bible Church with you. And as we've read in Ephesians, by giving you a spiritual gift, the Lord Jesus has made you a gift to his church and how you are specifically equipped to build up the saints, to love as Christ has loved one another and to edify one another, that you're specifically individually blessed this way, every one of you. And God has blessed our church in how we can function corporately. And I'm looking for, fearfully with the Lord, looking for opportunities and ways for us to do things together. One thing we do together is we eat the word. We spend time together in the word. Sometimes we eat food and spend time in the word. Sometimes we eat food and we praise God in song. But always when we assemble, it's about the Lord Jesus. And the more that's true, the more you're equipped in your individual work. You're a pebble in whatever pond God drops you and the gospel's radiating out from you, it's supposed to be. And I don't mean you're sitting around at lunch preaching to the multitudes. You may be, and that's because God is equipping you for that. But I mean, what God does with Paul when he sets him in a place and the gospel radiates out, I think he's doing with us, all of us. And this is a great cause for rejoicing. This church supports us like the Philippians supported Paul, supports me in the gospel ministry. Like the Philippians supported Paul, we have all of our needs covered. I have every reason, just like Paul prays, for the, for the Philippians to pray this with joy for you. And I don't, it, it can't always be, every church can't say that. It's really awesome that the Lord has so blessed our church with you and so blessed me. Per, I'll just testify personally as one that I can be full-time in this work with such incredible support. And we honor God and praise him on your account for that reason in the tradition, in the attitude the Apostle Paul has here. Because the reason for the gospel support is for the gospel ministry, for this mission. Now, I look for opportunities for corporate work. Anytime there's something we can throw in together and do, we try to do. A lot of times it's directed toward children, which turns out to be, I think, a high priority thing for the Lord. We work on VBS together. It's one of our big corporate works. It's a hard thing. It's, it, I see scars. <laughs> you see scars of VBS work. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard because we make it hard. Well, most of the time. But what else do we do? We're in the schools. Right before this COVID thing, we were gearing up. We had the connections, we had the friendships set up to start another club in Lisbon. And I think the thing's gonna end. I think, I don't think this is the new normal. I think we're gonna see um, 
a return to the, the functions of our clubs. And I think we're going to have that, that Lisbon club ready when it's time. And I think God has a team that he's going to put together from this church. And we probably need to hear more from the teams as a church family to know what we together are doing. So it is more of a joint effort. But um, this is what he's talking about. This is the nature of Christian ministry. If you don't have this in your life, it's not because there is an opportunity here in this, this church family. My prayer for you is that you'll find your stride. Hit your stride and, as Paul says, grow in love and, and therefore into the expression of your spiritual gift. And you'll be able to participate and have this joy that Paul has. Before we came to Preston City Bible Church, we told our friends in Texas that we were headed up to Connecticut we were told by one dear saint that that was not going to work out. More than one said, you know, there's Yankees up there and um, isn't it liberal and all that. And um, for those who are wondering about that side of things, when you find conservatives in New England, they're really conservative, which is really neat. And um, it's, a, it's certainly a minority position. Um, but the, the dear saint that said that it won't work out was talking about money because the, the claim was we have this church of more than a hundred people and, and cheap, low gas prices, low electricity costs, you know, Texas, no, uh, state income tax, you know, still really high sales tax, but high property taxes, but we're proud of our low tax taxes. They call, some people call it the state of taxes. Anyway, you, you, it just won't add up. We can't really call a pastor to this church because we don't have enough money to support a pastor and his family. How this just won't add up. How could you go to a very expensive high rent Connecticut and do it? And you know, that makes sense. If there is no God, if he doesn't have all the resources, if he doesn't have a mission for us to be in, if we're, we're finding a job for us to go find a, you know, go do a job somewhere and get a salary, then yeah, it doesn't work. It's impossible. You know, let's make a, a nice landing field and then we'll jump. But we said, we think it, uh, it will work. And we think it'll be a witness that that church actually supports the ministry of the gospel. It's actually a big problem in the grace movement. It's a big problem that nobody talks about. The support of the ministry of the gospel is just not a priority because people for generations have correctly been told that there is no charge for, for the spiritual life and that the gospel is freely by God's grace and that you don't pay for it. And that's true. And people in their pettiness without reading the scriptures or understanding the mission of the gospel like you do, like the Philippians did, they've said, well, it's free then. And they come and they listen and they take notes and they leave. And it was nice to have been there and been with like-minded believers. And, and budget for the gospel, no way. We can't afford that. 
I've got kids, bills, uh, uh, veterinary bills, um, whatever. I, I can't, I can't support the ministry of the gospel. And this church has never, it's never been blighted that I've known by this curse. It's a curse. And it takes away the joy. Part of the, 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 the nutritional value of your spiritual life, part of what God wants you to have, he wants you to be able to rejoice. If you look at uh, Preston City Bible Church today, and, and you should, we, we put out the budget that we're going to propose for the next year, the way we do money with this church. I hate talking about money. It's my roots. I hate talking about it. If you talk about the, the money of Preston City Bible Church, if you look at what this year's budget was compared to what we said 10 years ago, the way we do it is we look at what the Lord provided last year and we look at what God has us doing and prayerfully with fear and trembling, we propose something similar. Sometimes it's a little bit ambitious, but it's always in the intention of the ministry of the gospel and with the recognition, if the Lord says no, it's a no. And, but, but we've budgeted so that we're disciplined in how we use our resources. Pastors get in trouble all the time for just assuming that their discretionary like use of money will be agreed with, everyone will agree to it. Then they'll just go use money. And they didn't have a fund for their little discretionary use. And they get, they get blown up out of little churches all the time because they do that. And that doesn't happen in this church because we are, and I've been trained by being here. I mean, this is my first pastor pastorate. You know, let's go for it being the last one, right? Um, I've learned how to do it from here, watching how this church functions. It's amazing. And there is no discretionary expense without first consulting one another, without looking at what we've said, without looking at our mission. And um, this is, and we've done things as a board that we haven't asked the church. And we said, but it's in keeping with what we're doing. And so um, what I'm trying to tell you is if you look at the budget from 10 years ago and you look at it today, it will be shocking to you the difference. For years, we gave to missions based on whatever you put in the offering box we'll, for missions, we'll give to the missionaries. What did, it, what did the offering box produce? What did people volunteer? to give on a one by, you know, on a one-on-one -on -one basis individually. And then we, you know, we'd come up with some number that, that was the total for that discretionary giving to, to the missions, to foreign missions or local missions, vocational missions like, uh, like the, the La Rosa's or the Myers or Chafer Seminary. And that discretionary work was not unbiblical but budgeting something where we say together, this is what we want to do as a church family towards missions, that's not unbiblical either. And every time you give, you purpose in your heart and you do what you do for God's glory, for God's sake, for God's work. But we planned missionary giving. And the difference in what we were able to do for this little group is startling. It's startling. I mean, we're talking 20 times now what we can give in missions as opposed to what we were giving when it wasn't planned, intentional. But I mean, seriously, like 20 times more. 
And I don't want to talk about numbers because we're, we're just, we're a little church family. But I think we give sacrificially. I think we all give sacrificially. And I praise God because you are advancing the gospel throughout the world. Little bitty Preston City Bible Church. And this is what Paul is talking about. On account of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day till now, he is rejoicing when he makes his request for them. Convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Your resources, Christians, are not being wasted in the gospel ministry. God, who started this work in you, and he's not talking about your spiritual life. He's talking about the fruit of it in your support of the gospel and how you are preaching Christ through the world. How are the Philippians doing? Well, we know, we know that one way they do it is they're giving to Paul. And we are today beneficiaries of the Philippians in their giving. Their spiritual support for the gospel ministry is now affecting us. We're going to go find Epaphroditus in heaven. We're going to find these Philippians and they have their little reunion and say, God used you for us. And so what God began with them, we today are still waiting for the day of Christ, but we are benefiting from that work. He's still bringing this work to completion that the Philippians did through our benefit today throughout the whole world this is this is awesome he who began a good work among you will complete it unto the day of christ jesus this is paul's encouragement and it's a little bit of a digression as he's talking about thanking god and asking for them asking god's blessing just as it is right for me to think this way concerning you all since i have you in my heart because both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you are my fellow partakers of grace. You're in my heart because you're right here with me. You have sacrificed while I have suffered. You have scrounged to support this effort. And therefore you are with my chains in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, your fellow partakers of grace. What do I have to do to get to be part of that club? How do I get into some of that? As I've said, you are. This is a Philippian church. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. God knows that I'm not just saying this, that it's not just a... a a letter to, I mean, if we wanted to say he's flattering them or something else, Paul puts verse eight. So you know that he's saying this is between me and the Lord, that this is genuine. How I long for you all. This is the personal spiritual life. It's the personal connection between other believers and your spiritual life. Paul's talking to a whole group of believers and he can say all of you. And that's one of the benefits of a local church is that you or, or, well, yeah, a local church. You are in, you're one collection, and Paul can think of you together. How long for you all with the affections? The word affections is a euphemism. 
in English because the language is splonknon and it, it means intestines. Sounds strange to us, but it didn't sound strange to them. Your older Bible would say bowels. I'm not sure that's an improvement. This is the old, you know, those of you who have been in the Bible a while, you know that biblically, both in the Old and New Testaments, uh, the writers will use physical phenomena of the body to describe something spiritual, something immaterial. And I believe that's what he's doing here. I mean, I'm certain of it. I think the word cardia in the New Testament and lave, levav in the Old Testament, the heart, is not talking about your physical pump almost ever. I don't think it's talking about this thing. And I don't think it is, and here's, here, understand, we want to say, I just trust the Lord in my heart. The reason I don't think it's this thing is, let me do an experiment with you. Let's have a heart transplant. Do you need to be born again, again? If you had an unbeliever's heart, well, no, if I had a believer heart transplant, then I wouldn't need to because I got a believer's heart. No, it, it's not the physical pump. But what the physical pump is and does kind of gives you an idea about the heart of man, the core of the immaterial man in which is the thinking and the reasoning and the wanting and the joy and the sorrow. All these things are part of the heart biblically. If you do the actual biblical word study, it's the command center. It's the center of the inner man. And well, is it the soul? Yeah, the heart is in the soul. And now heart and soul. Dun, 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 dun. All right. For God is my witness how I long for you all with this emotional desire. This, the affections, the splonk known is talking about the emotions or the feelings. And that's a good word for feelings if you think about indigestion and the need for proper digestion and especially when it gets down to lower digestion. If things go wrong there, bad day. Everything's fine. Hey, good day. And so uh, pretty common throughout the ancient world to use this language for how you feel. But this is how Paul feels toward them. And it's not a sin to want to be together with people that you love dearly, that are your close partners in the gospel when you're stuck in prison and you can't be with them. I want to come to you, but I can't. This is the same thing he says to all the people that he has to write a letter to. The Lord or the Holy Spirit prevented me, he tells the first Thessalonians, so I had to write this letter and I want to be there with you. What if you don't feel this way about being with other believers? Is your experience telling you that Paul is wrong or that's just personal for Paul? No. If you don't have this, then you don't have the affections of Christ Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's the, what God will produce in you. And this is why I say, I say this, and I hope you get this. If you'll think his thoughts and trust in him through what he said, he will provide you a different set of feelings. That's the key is you think first and God brings feelings second. Do you think there's a, 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 a feeling or an emotion associated with the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, guarding your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus? Is there not a feeling of security and stability that will come with that sense of peace? Of course of course there is. So biblically, we have prescribed throughout the scriptures the right emotions, the right feelings. There are wrong feelings. They're sinful. There are right feelings. I can't feel the right feelings right now. Well, you need to do some thinking first. 
you're trying to push spaghetti. You can't push spaghetti, I mean cooked spaghetti. You can't push it, you have to pull it. So, so think the thoughts that bring the joy. Joy is a feeling. So the thought of their success in the gospel gives Paul this rejoicing in verses three through six. And now he longs for them. It's, the, it's this beautiful sense of desire to be with them because of their relationship in Christ. And this I pray now in verse nine, we're to the prayer. This is what I've been supplicating about. And this I pray that your love still more and more will abound in spiritual knowledge and all discernment. Did you read in verse nine, spiritual growth? I did. That's a category of biblical doctrine that I like to talk about. I think it's very important because we're born again as newborn babies. And then we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. We have to long for the pure milk of the word, like a newborn baby longs for his mother's milk. We have to be um, eating eventually solid food and we should all be teachers by now in Hebrews five, but yet you need milk and you need the fundamental, the basics. He says to the Hebrews who should know better by now, whoever he is, the writer to the Hebrews. And so what I'm saying is we have a category in the Bible well-developed called spiritual growth. That is a maturity thing that happens as the word of Christ is more and more richly dwelling within you. And you are trusting in God and doing what he said and the power that he supplies. But I think the way Paul summarizes that most often is this word L-O-V-E. What grows in 1 Thess 3 is love. What grows in Philippians 1 is love. If you hear the, the radical claims of Jesus that you love one another as I've loved you, and you say, how can I, 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 don't, I don't really feel that. I don't, I, maybe I'm not really Christian or something. That's really a heavy challenge. You're supposed to think that way. I mean, not that you're not a Christian, but that that's a really high calling. Something you grow into. Something I am growing into. Something we're all growing into. Hey, believers, when you feel, careful use of language, when you feel like you're not being Christian loved by that other brother or sister that you've got your fixation on instead of on Jesus, they're not loving me the way I think I ought to be loved. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe they're growing and that's where they are. That's what they have to give, right? Ever deal with little kids? You want, some, you want an eight-year-old boy to provide you some sort of mature expression of devotion and concern and selflessness? There are brilliant moments where that, that shows up. But they're, they're the exceptions, right? They're the exciting, oh, wow, look at, look at what God's doing. Enjoy the moment. <laughs> They're a kid, they're learning, they're growing. They give what they have. And that's true of every believer. And so this is what he prays. Their love will still more and more abound in spiritual knowledge and discernment, all discernment, so that you will approve the better things, so that you will have the right scale of values and think like God thinks about whatever it is. It's spiritual discernment. This is the application of the character of Christ from the word of truth richly dwelling in you to the situation and you're able to say this is better and this is worse decision 2020 whatever the situation is you're able to make this assessment this evaluation 
so that you'll be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. See, your decisions that you make on the basis of this approval, this determination, these decisions you make give you a, a good outcome. You are sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. And so Paul is loving these people by wanting them to grow in love so that they have good decisions, so that ultimately the Lord Jesus is pleased with them at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what he's thinking about. When Paul thinks about those to whom he ministers, he thinks about Jesus Christ saying, here's what I think about your choices as a believer. That is huge. Having been filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are through Christ Jesus unto the glory and praise of God. You will have this sincere and blameless uh, outcome in the day of Christ because in your spiritual lives, as you grew spiritually, you were being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which only come through Jesus Christ. And they're only for the glory and praise of God. And you could say, fruit, well, let's do a word study. You got the fruit of the spirit. It's the character of Christ. But I think you, you also need to go to John 15. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The Lord Jesus thinks of our works that are not the product of his work in us as though they are nothing. And that is a bad outcome at the judgment seat of Christ. Because the works that you do that are nothing to him were wasted opportunities that should have been something. And he's looking at the fields that you were supposed to sow and he says, there's a lot of fallow ground out there that was supposed to be producing. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of empty field that I wanted to see fruit. Missed opportunities, and we're full of them. But I shouldn't say we're full of them. We have enough that we're disappointed. But that's what today is for. Today is for being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are through Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. It is so beautiful and artistic the way Paul said it. The, the King James article I read in Britannica that said it's superior in the New Testament, the King James superior to the original <laughs> because of its artistic flair. Well, it depends on what you're going for, but I don't think there's anything more beautiful than what he says, that this is the outcome of the judgment seat of Christ. You want to, to have been filled you're good, you're good to go when Jesus evaluates your works because you've been filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are through Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God, to whom we bow. Father, we thank you for fellowship and your word and the privilege we have to think your thoughts after you, according to what the Apostle Paul has said here about our mission in life, our purpose, and Paul's great prayer for these beloved Philippian believers. Father, thank you for Preston City Bible Church and that we have a solid report we can be a Philippian church because of what we share as kindreds with them. We are on mission and we are giving to the gospel ministry like Philippians to the advance and partnership uh, with this furtherance of the gospel. And I ask that, as Paul said, his circumstances would turn out for the greater advance of the gospel. This would be true in all of our lives. Whatever our circumstances are, we commit it to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.